Kim. And we're here today with a very special guest. We have Rose here, Rose Sinister. Say hi, Rose. Hello, everyone. Can you Rose? hear me? Yes, we got you. Yay! Yay! Rose is actually a, a historian in the New Orleans area and does ghost, not ghost tours, sorry, vampire oh, tours. Oh, you do ghost ones too. I do ghost ones too, yeah. Ghost tours, vampire tours, whatever kind of tour that's got spooky information you want to know, Rose has got y'all back. <laughs> and she also hosts a podcast called Rose Sinister's Vampires. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the number one rated vampire podcasts currently, I believe. Yeah, it's it's not number one, but it is in the top three, top five as far as like ratings go right now, which is which is kind of awesome. That's fantastic. That's super cool. And I have to say, so I recently went to New Orleans, obviously. Um, and the way that I met Rose was I went on a vampire tour with my boyfriend and she was awesome. She did a really great tour. And it was one of, I think, my favorite tours I've ever been on. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's really fantastic because the way that she talks about the tour is she gives you a lot of information, but she lets you decide what to believe yourself. And I think that's a really good angle for us to approach this episode because we're going to be talking a lot about lore. We're going to be talking a lot about legends. We're going to be talking a lot about things that were passed down orally versus Where's Jake? Uh, just, uh, <laughs> where's, Every time we say the word, daddy. word oral, ghost daddy appears. <laughs> he manifests. He manifests. <laughs> Um, like saying Candyman into the mirror. Oh my but god! Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I want Tony Todd to show up. <laughs> well. I know. I know that's going to be a bad story. Maybe a great episode, but bad story. Um, but anywho, so we're going to be talking about things that we have done research on. We may not have full evidence, evidence. on um, what you know, makes it accurate or true. So just to give a pre-warning precursor before we even get into it. But um, something that I noticed when I was in New Orleans is that there is so much energy there with lots of different vibes of magic and maybe not like literal magic, but maybe just energy of people, maybe people that have lived there in the past, stories of things that you wouldn't think would be normal in like any other city, but you go to New Orleans and for some reason it's like the norm, which is interesting. Mm. So one of the locations that I really wanted to talk about um, was the old Ursuline convent. And love talking about that story. So Rose, take it away. Tell me what you know about the old Ursuline convent and I'll like add a couple things here or there, ask you some questions. But like when, when did it start? I heard it was the oldest building in all of New Orleans. Yes, it is. It's not just the oldest uh, building in New Orleans. It's the oldest building of European origin in the Mississippi River Valley. And I, I, I always like to say specify of European origin because Mississippian mound builder culture left behind structures that predate that the convent by centuries but the Ursuline convent is an incredibly old and incredibly historic structure now the the one that you see on the tours the one that you see on charters and Ursulines is not 
the original building. It is a modification of the original building that dates back to the 1750s. The first building was built in the 1730s. The Ursula nuns um, arrived in New Orleans in like 1726 when New Orleans was very, very young and a, a, a small convent was built for them within the first 10 years of their arrival. And then that was expanded on and using a lot of original materials from the original structure. But that is the one that's, that, that you see today. It survived. Oh fires in 1788 and 1794 that destroyed most of New Orleans. So it is easily the most historic building in New Orleans. And it's super cool. Actually, I was able to go on a tour there and the best part, and we're going to talk about why it's spooky, but I mean, come on, let's be real. It's one of the oldest physical buildings that still stands. There's got to be something still vibing around, whether it's a ghost or a vampire or what have you. Old but, buildings, nuns. I mean, that's a horror movie setting in and of itself, it already, right? It already exists. There, there's already a few of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're, they're mostly really shitty, but... <laughs> this is the real one. Um, but it's so funny because when I walked in, uh, my boyfriend and I walked in, we just, I mean, we don't look that suspicious, I don't think. <laughs> But the lady that was working there, she's this nice little old, like, southern old bell. None. Really cute. No, she wasn't a nun. She was a docent. And she was just this little old lady who was really cute. And she looked at us, and she, without us even saying anything, she was like, what you're looking for isn't here. (laughs) And we were like, what? There's a little old lady shade right there. Oh, much shade. And I literally looked at her, and I pulled the sassy card. I was like, the old Ursuline convent? It's not here? Okay, let's go. <laughs> I kind of was like sassy and stupid, but then she's like, oh, no, no, that's that's here. That's this. And I was like, oh, well, that's what we're looking for. And she was like, oh, okay, $7. And then all of a sudden got like excited that we wanted to come in. But I just think it's funny that apparently we, we look like people that are looking. It's the bangs. Them. It's the bangs and the glasses, you know. A dead giveaway, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Undead giveaway. Hey, I like Ooh. that. Um, so I love the story though about how the Ursuline convent got started and you kind of started to talk about it. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that when New Orleans was first built, all of these convicts were sent to New Orleans to like, you know. Build- we Australia. Yeah. And it's just like all the worst possible people you'd want to be put together in a city. And I I think we may have talked about it at some point in time. There's still so much crime that goes on in New Orleans to this day that is so much crime. So much crime. crime. My bicycle was stolen off of my front porch. That's how much crime there is. So anyway, facts and murders. That's okay. If it makes you feel any better, my car has been broken into three times in Seattle. Yay. Okay. Um, so I know it's the worst. But anywho, lots of crime, lots of convicts, and they were all men, right? So overwhelmingly overwhelmingly all men I think that's a really funny way to put it but also (laughs) they needed there was a a request for women to come in right so well yeah I was there I think there was this thing where they sent the nuns as kind of a joke right to be like here's your women but they're not really a joke although that's a joke that tour guides like to tell it wasn't intended as a joke although in retrospect it does seem like a joke um the women who were being sent to new orleans at first were mostly convicts themselves 
Mm-hmm. Um, so women who had been convicted of petty crimes, some of them were murderesses, some of them, you know, were prostitutes and other indecent women, which um, has been speculated that they were perhaps um, lesbians, although there's scant confirmation of that in the historical records. But given the amount of STIs found in the sex working population in France in the 18th century, there wasn't a very high birth rate in New Orleans because Mm -hmm. of, uh, well, various STIs. And then you have uh, malnutrition was an incredible thing. So you don't you don't have um, the caloric requirements to sustain uh, healthy fetal development and, you know, prevent neural tube defects and all of that sort of stuff. The, 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 the women just weren't healthy. The men weren't healthy. Bad eggs, bad sperm, not a lot of babies being born and certainly even, few, you know, not a lot surviving. So uh, the nuns were sent. Now, originally France, uh, originally New Orleans had been begging for um, the Sisters of Mercy, uh, not not the band because Andrew Eldrick hadn't been born yet, but the, uh, <laughs> the actual medical <laughs> order, the Sisters of Mercy. Um, I will not sing this corrosion for you, but um, the Ursulines were sent instead and the Ursulines are an educational order. So that was kind of, I think the joke was kind of what makes you what makes you think we need education? Right. Like, we don't need no education. That sounds familiar today. I yeah. mean <laughs> Yeah. But within ten years of their arrival, there were actually twice as many literate landowning women in Louisiana as there were men. So uh so that they was needed it. They yeah. needed it. Mm-hmm. And I heard I heard too that like the Ursuline convent was actually like one of the the main reasons that New Orleans kind of was rebuilt multiple times. So there, there's a lot of respect that goes into that convent, the people that ran it, all of the yeah, above. Absolutely, absolutely. They, I mean, they educated women and that enabled, you know, you t- teach people basic cleanliness. You know, <laughs> wash your hands. Yeah, wash your hands. Suddenly you're not spreading typhus and diphtheria everywhere. Oh my God. Who knows? Um, you know, but also when the fires happened, the Ursulines let people pinch, pitch tents on their grounds and, you know, supported um, the rebuilding and the recovery efforts because they're their their grounds their land wasn't burnt or impacted by the fires you know they yeah. had a sterling reputation among the community very that's awesome profoundly very devoutly catholic uh french and and spanish citizens they they respected the the ursulines uh, because they were they were brides of christ and totally. they they did um a lot of good for the community and what they also did was bring over more women, right? They did. They, they, they were kind of like, hey, France has a lot of orphan girls. They're in the cities. They're in the countryside. They've lost their dowries. They are uh, looking down the barrel of an ugly, uncertain future as these things sort of go. And, uh, you know, Fontaine sort of futures. And so sending them away solved multiple problems because you, you don't have populations of indigent women in France, which is um, all sorts of problematic and all sorts of levels uh, at the time. And also it sent girls to the new world who would have 
some sort of a future here and okay. it satisfied the the lonely horny men who were otherwise without uh without women to go home to at night and without so, women to make babies with because clearly that was already <laughs> an issue right yeah, yeah you're not gonna, yeah, exactly. you're not gonna win that nope <laughs> with the nuns that's that's, that's a were, dead end uh, uh, there were actually yeah. reports um <laughs> from like the early fortified city of new orleans where convicts were scaling the walls and what? running off into the swampy woods chasing after native american women and so that is I the think, creepiest thing i've ever heard that's worse than ghosts ew yeah yeah <laughs> it's like you know unwashed french settler coming well, we already after taught them. Hold woman. Me. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, those men would then not come back. And the story was that they'd been attacked by cannibal Native Americans, which was all like <laughs> karma, anti-Native propaganda. But I was going nice to say that some of them were cannibalized just because they deserved it. I was going to say the karma's a bitch. <laughs> Happens. Yeah. Um, but I know when the women that came over that were considered the uh, casket girls, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about them for a second. So they were yeah. originally called the field. Feel a la Okay, I'm like yeah. not pronouncing things right. I can't do French. So I, I, I can only pronounce French like a New Orleanian. So any better than, out there, my apologies. Hey man, you got the like the LA Valley girl coming out on, on this side, and then Kim is just like, whatever, it's fine. It's whatever mood I'm in at any given moment. <laughs> well, I did grow up in Van Nuys. Oh no way. Yes. So wow. I've yeah, I was like right there at Satakoy and Balboa where the Dude, Del Taco from, and the Yummy Donuts is. I'm from like Studio City, like Woodland Hills area. Get this. We need to have a separate conversation about this. <laughs> Not on the podcast, but this is wild. So, so there's this, this thing that I sometimes find myself doing where I'm like, like, oh my God, y'all. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh my like, God, y'all. Yeah. That's so great. Um, like y'all, like y'all. Like oh my god, y'all. <laughs> it's a thing oh, oh my god, y'all. <laughs> <Kim>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so dumb. I love it. <sighs> so, okay, casket girls. Let's talk. real life. Yes, uh, the right. So there's there's a whole lot going on here linguistically. Yeah. First of all, a cassette is not a casket at all whatsoever. That's a, a an anglicization of a of a French word. That having been said, there are other examples in other European languages of boxes used to transport belongings on long voyages having kind of spooky names. So the boxes that say Swedish immigrants carried to the New World were called Kaffen boxes. That's great. Like literally coffin boxes. And so wait, is that they, supposed to have like a Boston accent to it too? No, that's that is how I have that is me trying to re- recreate the way that I've heard Swedes say that's that. That's awesome. Word. I love it. Keep also, going. So apologies to oh, all Swedes. Amazing. <laughs> Cuz I can only pronounce things like an American. Oh, so perfect. But yeah, so I th- I heard that the the term casket only came around in the 1900s too in the uh-huh. english language yeah uh-huh. it is at its core a bit of a, of a of a stretch of linguistics but it's still an interesting story because a lot of those girls didn't make it 
there were more boxes that arrived than brides to accompany them. Did they and, put in their boxes? Well, you know, that was <laughs> Kim's laughing. partially some of the stories too. <laughs> Louis, put me in my coffin. Um, no, I, I, I don't know. If, I mean, that's, that's certainly the story that people have sort of gone with. That's, that's, that's part of the whole issue um, that, that has become this, this, this myth, this urban legend, but it is rooted in some really weird things. You know, the young girls who did arrive, they were gaunt and pale and they had bleeding gums from scurvy from long months at sea. And um, that's, uh, that's a pretty creepy sight to behold. And, and they were pretty much ushered out of public view and, and, and kept under lock and key until they were healthy enough to be actually married off. Um, and many fine old families in uptown New Orleans claim to be descendants of the Fiat So, so the, the, the Fiat were either vampires or, you know, matriarchs of fine old New Orleans families, which is a completely different type of monster story. So either way. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. True, true. Don't get me started on marks and vampires. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but I also heard too that... Um, with and when I say I heard, it's because I researched it. I'm not just like willy nilly hearing things and talking. About I heard it. on the I show. heard, um, which you know, technically, that's how all these things get started. Is that someone talks about it and then someone else goes, "What?" And then they say, "That sounds interesting." I'm going to say, make it sound more interesting, and that's how we get these stories. But mm -hmm. so because they were so pale and gaunt and had those bloody gums, people were like, "That's a vampire," instead of thinking, "Oh, that's just a." unhealthy pale person so yeah, i mean it's not outside the realm of possibility that somebody would would look at that and, and and make that assumption um a couple of things to keep in mind here is that we have written documented records of vampire folklore in france um the first documentation was in like 1692 um that's that's like a hundred years before those fictional accounts started to be published in Germany and in England. So vampire folklore was known in France at the end of the 17th century. And what does the folklore describe a vampire as? It's a reanimated corpse that is either bloodless or really, really ruddy because it's bloated with all of the blood that it has fed and engorged itself on. Wow, that's an image. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and often they have blood at the gum line or receding gum lines, which is uh, kind of the genesis of the idea of vampires having fangs. You go from vampires having longer teeth to vampires having predatory animalistic characteristics to vampires having the full on elongated canine uh, sort of, um, of toothies. Uh, but, when but really it's just receding gums. <laughs> It's, well, you know, it's desiccation of the corpse, essentially. Right. I mean, that's, you know. They should have brushed more, too. I mean, that, that would have taken care of that problem. Go see your dentist once a year, guys. <laughs> floss. <laughs> Always floss. <laughs> if you don't floss, you're going to turn into a vampire, or at least everyone's going to think you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what every parent should tell their child. <laughs> you're gonna, no. Yeah, but there's going to no, be no, that no. kid that's like, really? Really? Yeah, that would have been me. Yeah. That's going to be like mm -hmm. him showing up at work the next day and a kid just starts to bite someone. 
Uh, you say that like it's not happened. You could ask them the last time they've been to the dentist and they'll get confused. You'll never know. I'm a vampire, mommy. Oh, and what's creepier than a child vampire, right? Am I you could have right? stopped at child and oh, been accurate child, as well. Right? <laughs> I mean, we could go down this rabbit hole for a long time. So I'm going to reel us back in. All right. <laughs> no, real this is what we do real best the- is that we we digress um, we do we're very good we're, we are professional digressors yes so anywho people thought that these girls were potentially vampires right i mean i don't know if they thought that at the time okay. it is plausible to believe that they did there is evidence to suggest that they had every reason to think that but i am saying that based on that description, later generations have assumed Uh, that that was an assumption. We assume that they assumed. Did they actually assume? We don't know, but we assume that they assumed. And that's why we use the word allegedly. Allegedly, presumably, (laughs) possibly, plausibly. (laughs) Right. Well, because (laughs) so many things can't be proven right an absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence you know i can't prove that i had a trader joe's pizza for lunch last friday i mean i assure you that i did but you will not find evidence of that in my house fair or vampires (laughs) but vampires yeah i mean so so why not why not i mean it's a great story so it's and, a fantastic story. It, I mean, and we all love a good story, and that's why we're we even do. talking about it. But wasn't there also a theory that so that were there three girls, or was it just I, I know it's like a whole bunch oh, there of there are stories. so many variations to this story. I heard so many variations that there story. were like three girls that came over with huge trunks that didn't have any <laughs> the, the pause before trunks was that just had priceless. huge. <laughs> Trunks, um, tracks of lead, <laughs> huge, very heavy trunks, and so <clears throat> people thought, "I can't stop it." Trudunkadunk. <laughs> um, <laughs> they had trudunkadunk. Where's Jake? Oh my God, I'm so sad that you can't meet Jake. Jake is like our favorite producer extraordinaire, and also we call him Ghost Daddy. He's the best, mm-hmm. and he takes jokes to the next level. And he would have taken this and run with it for like an hour. So we'll let Jake do that later. But um, anyway. They had huge trunks that were very heavy. There we go. No pauses. Um, and apparently they stored all the trunks on the third floor of the Ursuline convent, which was the like attic, right? Right. I mean, that's just miscellaneous storage. Right, which is so hot up there that it's really not useful for anything else. Certainly not conducive to any, you know, healthy yeah, human life. For sure. But then they would be kept up there for a, like logical perspective because there's nowhere else to put them and put them up there until you need them. And then once you need them, you go up and get them and you leave. Right. So they were supposed to be like dowries. Some people say is that they were sent over with the dowry. So when they get married, that's what they take with them. Yeah. Pots, pans, knives, needles, thread, everything they'd need as a bride in the colonial new world. I mean, practical necessities. Totally. And then there were three girls that when they went to get their casket caskets, Casket, cassettes. cassettes. I can't even say it. <laughs> That's um, they were empty, and no one could explain why they were empty. And I think that's where there was also the concept of vampires coming to the new world in 
the trunks and that's why they were so heavy when they first got there but once they went to retrieve them they were empty and that's why they thought there was like a person in there as opposed to like stuff that may have just been used at some point and then taken out later Right, right. I mean, sometimes it's easier to blame the supernatural than to believe that you have a thief oh, yes. living among you, right? Like, Honestly, I can't even tell you right now that you, you haven't heard some of our episodes, but we talk so much <laughs> about debunking things that we try to mm-hmm. think of everything that is not paranormal. As people who are in a paranormal ghost hunting group, we try mm-hmm. to think of everything that is not paranormal that would explain this quote-unquote paranormal thing. So it's the same kind of concept, right? It, yeah, it's the obverse of it, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, the other side of the same coin because sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's shades of what Carrie Fisher said about her own life. She said, if my life wasn't funny, it would just be true and that's unacceptable, right? There, there are sometimes when you're faced with the evidence of something that you don't want to accept because it would challenge your worldview, it would challenge the way that you perceive people around you, it would challenge your sense of security, uh, all of these things. And, you know, the idea that somebody has stolen valuable items from underneath your nose, that the thief might still be among you, that you can't trust the people that you're living with. That's a scary thing. You're thousands of miles away from home. You are isolated from everyone you've ever known. You've left behind so much and now you can't trust the people closest to you in these cloistered new world settings. Uh, Isn't it almost more comforting to think that there's a some vampire? Sort of a supernatural, some sort of a supernatural <laughs> something going on because then it's then it's outside of 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 of, of human responsibility or it's an alibi. And I, I think that sometimes sometimes those are comforting to people, even if they seem like scary, right? Totally. Well, and uh, also back back in the day. Like having lore, lore like this Mm -hmm. or legends like this were common. So that was like a a really great way to explain something is something that can't be explained. Right. I mean, when you examine like the Louisiana Rougarou legends, there's a, there's a, 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 an almost endless amount of variation to the Rougarou legends, which is uh, a combination of the French Lucarou werewolf shape-shifting stories. Oh, I've heard about that. The, the, the Choctaw uh, Rougarou, which was uh, pronounced uh, similar, spelt differently, and was more of a of a cannibal sort of a creature. Um, it's the dudes that were really horny <laughs> that went <laughs> after <laughs> the Native Americans. And then right. what happened? They got the Rougarou. Or well, sometimes the Rougarou was a frog. Sometimes if you oh. look at the Rougarou, you'll become a Rougarou. Sometimes the Rougarou goes after Catholics who break Lent. Sometimes the Rougarou is a witch. Sometimes the Rougarou is somebody who's been cursed by a witch. That's so vague. Exactly. Exactly. But the story is told to suit the purpose of the narrative, right? Yeah, totally. So like, what it, what is the problem that we're dealing with? Is we it have a ghost? Is it a vampire? Is it a witch? Is right. it a werewolf? Mm-hmm. You know, like pick one of these four and there's a lot of overlap between these four. Like the Venn diagram is practically a, a, like, a, like a, a, a rounded square. It lands on October 31st. Yes. So, so like, yeah, I think that, that people have been telling stories like this for a very long time. They're entertaining. They're somewhat scandalous, right? Yep. 
Actually, you can't you can't directly criticize the church. I can, but I was raised in it, so I'm allowed. <laughs> and well, the time was. That's and true. Kim Delphit. <laughs> um, but what's interesting too is that, and this is again hearsay, that apparently when the the girls arrived, the uh, mortality rate skyrocketed. And yeah. that um, even weirder, the infant mortality rate was the highest affected, which, but that could make sense too. If you have a lot of women coming in, then they are probably having more babies than they I was going to say, if there's more babies and more of them to die. I mean, not to yeah. like Kim just put that out everyone. there. Listen, <laughs> you know, I scully. I know I'm Mulder. You're scully. It's fine. <laughs> um, it's great. Anywho. So there was that. And then. Okay. There's the shutters. Let's talk about the shutters. Mm -hmm. So apparently when they discovered that the cassettes were empty, that's when there was that little whispering of potential vampires amongst people and people who were, you know, not skeptics, let's say, decided to go have a bunch of nails blessed by the Pope, right? They were blessed by a religious figure. Okay, not the Pope. Someone in said the Pope. Every, They're wrong. In every <laughs> single, in every single variant of the story, they were blessed by a religious figure. It's the Pope. It's the Archbishop. It's uh, a regular bishop. It's the local priest. But in every single variant of the story, they were blessed by a religious figure in the Catholic Church. And how many? The common thread. How many were in there? Seven. In each one, right? In each shutter. So 77 blessed nails nailed each shutter in the windows of the attic shut so that whatever from the was, outside from the outside. So whatever was on the inside couldn't get out because they believe that there may have been something paranormal, which is cause for concern for anyone else. And I would imagine that like the second there's action that's put into a story that is a story, but now all of a sudden someone's doing something to make it actually validated makes it more concerning so then it probably mm -hmm. instigated more concern amongst the people who didn't believe anything to begin with right right so uh, the shutters are probably one of the weirdest parts of the story because they are sealed shut from the outside they cannot be open from within that's like that's that's officially what what has been said what has been told and yet you do have people who will claim that they've seen them open there is what happened after hurricane katrina which was first told to me by a man who'd been in the army national guard after the storm he came and took my tour uh, about three or four years ago and uh, he told me the story and then I've had it independently verified by a number of other people who are in the Army National Guard or were married to former guardsmen, um, army wives, that sort of thing, that there were shutters blown open during the storm. I mean, it was a category five. The wind was going to blow things open and immediately afterwards, Somebody was flown in, presumably from Rome, to reattach those shutters and had Army National Guardsmen escorting them into the into the building. Um, and we can we can scully this. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina, almost everybody had been evacuated. 
you have a very sensitive historic building with very sensitive information being stored in an attic. You can't send just about anybody up there. It needs to be somebody who has clearance, somebody who has special training, special skills to work on these historic buildings so that nothing is damaged in excess. And there's the matter of time. A lot of people who um, aren't from the Gulf South tend to forget that shortly after Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita was brewing in the Gulf and it did extraordinary damage um, to the area just to the west of New Orleans. So um, there was a an urgency. There, there was this feeling at the time that this huge second hurricane could slam into New Orleans. So why not send somebody in from Rome to reattach those shutters. I mean, it actually does kind of sort of make sense. And yet it is also still really creepy. I mean, yes, it also makes sense that you would have Army National Guardsmen escorting high-ranking individuals into a very historic building in a city that was filled with looters and uh, all sorts of other issues. All the crime, right? But, but it's also a very creepy set. It's a very creepy confluence of of events that 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 did really happen and And the city was still in ruins at this point like there were people that were still stuck right i'm not entirely sure about the actual dates of got it okay that's okay incident um i'd like to believe that everybody had been rescued off of the rooftops at the time um but i don't we don't know exactly i don't know yeah yeah. That's really interesting, I, I, though, that they would do yeah. that, that there's that kind of sense of urgency just to nail these shutters shut yeah. when there's lots of other things you would think would take priority. You would think that. Right? But then, you know, the Catholic Church has a lot of resources that they can spend on 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 things like that. And, you know, let's, let's just, you know, charitably say that they didn't want their valuable paperwork up there getting wet valuable paperwork sorry that's valuable air quotes paperwork. <laughs> valuable air quotes paperwork that's what we're gonna call this episode is valuable paperwork valuable in paperwork. new orleans people are gonna be like what the hell is this podcast about paperwork pass just kidding um, <laughs> but there's also this other story that i read about and i have to read it because i think it's also wild in the 70s there was a small group of paranormal researchers that came to new orleans um to look into the convent but i mean it's like us but in the 70s but we're alive so also we exist we do exist but there there were paranormal researchers that did go there this is a legit story that gets told in new orleans and it has value for the fact that it has been so oft repeated, not just by tour guides, like it's not something that was like invented on the internet to give people a scare. This is more like El Chupacabra, right? This is a legend that emerges out of what seems to be a collection of evidence. And it is a story that has been repeated so often it has become a bit of its of a cultural thing in its own right and as such it's valid to examine this story and to deconstruct it because it is a part of the folklore surrounding the Ursuline convent and greater thematic patterns of New Orleans culture and criminal past and you know corruption so it's relevant so yes Kim (laughs) 
Well, I was gonna say, I it, it, it's, uh, keeping it in that idea of it is legend because one of my big things, and it's not just me scullying, it's, it's also uh, as a tour guide, as a historian, like as long as we are sharing stories under the guise of this is legend, be it oral legend, be it local folklore, but it's when stories get reported as truth, which is what this one seems to be in a lot of instances. And personally, I find that very damaging because it perpetuates false history. So it's one thing to say, this is a legend that gets told that is a part of a bigger um, piece of New Orleans. It's another to say, this is a thing that happened. I mean, there's no physical evidence of vampires either. So like, I think if we're talking about... But it's a very different thing to talk about, I think, monster lore. and, And this is getting into true crime lore. Because people take this kind of story as fact a lot more readily than they do most people, let me qualify that, will take this kind of story more readily as fact than they would vampires. Fair. At least today, particularly in writing this current wave of true crime phenomena. And I see this happen in isolated cases as well as attached to famous killers, this misrepresentation of things they did or did not do. And it perpetuates a whole other thing that we try to battle against, which is, again, the sharing and continuous sharing of misinformation as fact and legend as fact. So for me. Let's, let's contextualize this because the incident in question happened in 1978. And in the late 70s, there was a massive, massive interest in the paranormal, in spiritualism, in the occult, in seances, in EVP, you did have a number of dedicated occultist ghost hunters going out and going into old buildings and making recordings of of various phenomena. The, the, the late 1970s is when movies like The Shining and Ooh. The Exorcist were, <laughs> um, you know, box office smash hits. So we're getting into something that demonstrably was very much part of the, the, the cultural uh, zeitgeist. Um, and then the Beauregard Kais House, which is the structure that is immediately opposite uh, the old Ursuline convent, is a very much renowned to be haunted structure in and of itself. It has a number of ghost stories associated with from the ghost of General P.T.G. Beauregard, who lived there after the American Civil War. There's a ghost cat. There's a ghost dog. There's a ghost donkey. There's a a mafia massacre (laughs) that allegedly took place there 100 years ago. So that is a thing. The the, the late 1970s and paranormal investigators uh, looking at haunted buildings in New Orleans, I can 100% guarantee you that was an ongoing trend at the time very very much um, and then you have um, murders with strange details about them that only pop up in the newspapers for for instance um, maybe a few paragraphs underneath a byline and then you know it, it's gone and and before 
the internet, when stories of a, of a strange nature got shared much more readily, you don't find a lot of documentation for, for, for things, unless there was a huge amount of media follow-up. Um, there, there are times when strange things happen and, and, and they don't get a lot of documentation. So, I mean, I, I, I think, I think that the culture of the time that this story comes from is also important to, to take into account. There were so many murders happening in New Orleans in the seventies and eighties and the nineties. Now, all the time. No, 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 no. More. What I'm telling you is like, it was, it was even more. Wow. Than it is now. And, you know, some really high profile crimes happened in the French Quarter in the the 80s and 90s that, you know, have largely been forgotten now simply because they've been replaced by other high profile crimes and and instances. Hold on, though, because we all know what we're talking about. Our listeners don't know what the hell we're talking about. But we've all digressed well, and we're coming feeling- coming back to the point I was making is yes. that I've been doing low-key research while I've been talking about this story specifically because I am always interested in, in again, fancy murders that may or may not have happened. Um, and I, I will say I found multiple accounts of people who have done extensive digging who find no police records, n- absolutely zero newspaper records. Uh, I've been scrolling through newspaper records. I'm finding lots of murders. Not a single one of them even bears a remote resemblance. Looking through archives from 1978, bears any resemblance to this fantastical story of these investigators breaking in and trying to set up equipment and being found drained of their body. Well, that's not the blood of their body. Exactly. So hold on. Let's, but I found variations on the story. So there's, there's variations of all stories that are spooky and weird. Right. So like, Let's tell the story to what we know. Let me give the quick version of the 1978 murder story. It was that paranormal investigators were camped up overnight at the Beauregard Kai's house um, looking for ghosts there. While they were investigating the hauntings at that location, they heard this strange story of the Ursuline convent. They heard about the shutters that are never open, except maybe late at night they might be, and wanting to um, see if they could find any weight to this urban legend. Two young people set up cameras on the front porch of the Barguard Kai's house, which faces the Ursuline convent. They had an unobstructed view of the dormer window shutters. The camera and the film were never retrieved. The, the investigators were uh, missing for a while. Um, there was grave concern among their, uh, their fellows. And then just after sunrise, the bodies showed up on the steps to the St. Mary's Chapel, which juts out from the old Ursuline convent at an L shape. It was a later addition to the property. Um, there weren't any injuries on them. They were kneeling in prayer. They'd been posed that way. They, they had no defense wounds. They hadn't fought back. But there's this very deep, very strange three-inch gash between their shoulder blades. And from this or by some other unknown mechanism, impossible amounts of blood were missing from their bodies. And there wasn't, you know, buckets of blood at the crime scene raising the question, where did the blood go? And it's a fascinating story. It's a story that emerged from a certain time and a certain place that, you know, resonates across time now. Uh, One of the things that I think is very interesting about that story is that it takes place right around the time when Frank Minyard was 
brand new at the coroner's office in New Orleans, was the longest serving elected official in U.S. history. Um, it's an elected position in New Orleans. He no longer serves. But basically, he was a doctor who was trained as a, as a, as a gynecologist. He didn't have a lot of experience in pathology. You know, even if you could find, you know, massive police reports about this, and even if this was something that was well documented, the spookiest element of the story, the fact that, you know, couldn't figure out where the blood had gone, um, is also easily written off or explained by the fact that the coroner's office didn't have a lot of experience in this sort of thing and, you know, probably had a backlog of bodies and was just, you know, making the most cursory notes that were misinterpreted by, by people after the fact. And I mean, the fact that there isn't documentation surrounding the story is a black mark against it. But I can't tell you how many times I have in my, the course of my own research found just a, a blurb of a story that's never been followed up on again. So I have a oh, Google yeah. alert. Yeah, I have a Google alert set up for, for vampire stories uh, to come up in the news. And uh, the, the Santa Clarita uh, Valley Ledger. In the late 1960s, late 1970s, California Highway Patrol officers pulled over this van that was driving with a broken headlight through Santa Clarita Valley. And um, the driver did not stop. So there was a brief chase and the, the, the van kind of swerved into a ditch and the driver got out and tried running away and he was caught and they opened up the back of the van and there's this rug rolled up in the back and it smells foul and they unroll the rug and there's the body of a 16 year old runaway who had been cannibalized and uh, her blood had been consumed by the, the, the killer who was now in police custody. It, the headline was the, the vampire van cannibal killer. No follow-ups on that at all in any newspaper ever. Ha, you know, I got alerted to it because it was like the 40th anniversary of it. Um, and the Santa Clarita Valley ledger was reprinting something that had been published 40 years prior, but it, it didn't have any, any follow-up to that at all about the trial, what happened to the perpetrator or anything like that. And, and those sort of stories happen all the time. I was just going to say, I wonder if that's where they got the Santa Clarita diet inspiration. <laughs> I have to wonder too. I have to wonder too. Because that's literally like the premise of the show. Like, yeah, zombie yeah. people, Santa Clarita. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's where they Well, in. I can tell you about 40-something <laughs> years ago, there was an incident of cannibalism and vampirism that happened in Santa Clarita. Right in our backyards. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so wild. My sister used to live in Santa Clarita. Uh, my cousin lives currently in Santa Clarita. So, uh, yeah, I have family there. So, I, yep, I know where that is. Um, <laughs> that's, I mean, it's so wild. Like, and we could talk about all day and night what we find and what we don't find. But either way, I just wanted to talk about it because it's fun. It's a fun story. It's a creepy story. And it it's, is. It's, it's interesting on the surface as as urban legend. It's interesting as just sort of analyze how it fits into actual documented history. It's It's fascinating to sort of know that history and to understand how a story like that could so easily emerge out of a certain time and a certain place because of how many vaguely related similar things were happening at the time. Um, the, the, the culture surrounding that story is, is what makes it plausible. 
And there were a lot of things that were happening that made that story plausible that are sort of given immortality. And because that story continues to be told, it represents um, a lot of, I think, frustrations and anxieties uh, and, and fears that were present at the time and, and remain perhaps to a lesser extent present still. For sure. And it's like a game of telephone too. Like if you yeah. talk about oh, yeah. it, like, I, like even when I heard about the story, I thought it happened in like 2006. <laughs> That's a little bit off. Yeah. <laughs> there was a murder in 2003 that was like, wasn't, uh, I remember something with like the people who did it described as being like wearing goth clothes or something. Oh, that's and, normal. And... Oh, oh, oh. So that <laughs> you know, was the Sean Johnson case. Yeah, that yeah, was the yeah, Sean yeah. Johnson case. And yeah. He was there um, from Atlanta for like a work thing and mm-hmm, Microsoft yeah. convention. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so that's what I thought Gabby was talking about initially. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because since that case happened, a lot of newer tour guides. I have heard on the street conflating that case with the story of the 1978 case. Mm. And it's, it's becoming something that people are sort of talking about in a different way now. And so you can sort of, it's really fascinating in my position profession to sort of have the ability to sort of observe real time, the way that these stories change and the things that happen to cause them to change, to just sort of sit back and, and, and think about all of the, the factors that play into the evolution of those stories. But that's definitely um, that's wild. a new spin that I've heard some newer tour guides saying now. And that's super crazy. I also saw on here that, um, and we were talking about this previously, was that there's another theory that um, the walls of the Ursuline convent started to kind of lean outward toward the street uh, and needed to be rebuilt eventually at a certain point. And when they were knocked down, they found a whole bunch of corpses of like infant corpses of babies in them. But in that aspect, when we were kind of talking about it, it, it doesn't sound that wild because if you're thinking about a crypt or a mausoleum and how people were buried in the south being above ground and being within walls from time to time with that infant death rate where are you going to put all those babies with all the women that are living in the convent and again you you take a tour of any cemetery in new orleans and you will find that the walls are are on the inside of the cemeteries yeah Yeah. it's it's column after column and row after row of identical wall vaults right that's just how we inter the dead here. So, um, so it's not as you know, creepy technically as it sounds. It's more of like a way to process the dead in a way to yeah. be more functional versus creepy, but yeah, being creepy too. Win, it's a yeah. win-win. Um, but also, okay, really quick, I want to kind of start to wrap up a bit. I know that you have some recommendations on books that are about the old Ursuline convent and the casket girls, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So uh, first of all, um, Kalila Smith of Haunted History Tours wrote a book called um, Vampires, Ghosts, and Voodoo, cool. which is about various New Orleans and Louisiana folklore and urban legends. Um, 
And it has a pretty exhaustive bibliography in the back, which is uh, a useful resource as well, uh, which leads me to recommend it. There's also um, Marita Voywood Crandall, who owns Boutique de Vampire and the Ooh, uh, Vampire Speakeasy. Oh, I went there. Uh, potions in New Orleans. Uh, she wrote a book called New Orleans Vampires History and Fiction. Um, goes into a little more depth about sort of the reality of what happened um, to the Ursulines crossing the Atlantic, the actual origins of the Fiat and all of that. Um, I don't agree with all of the conclusions that she draws from the historical sources that she cites, but um, I, I, I also think that there's uh, room for disagreement there. Um, and I, you know, it's not the book that I would have written, but she wrote it first. There's also a young adult novel called The Casket Girls by Elise Arden, and it's spelled C-A-S-Q-U-E-T-T-E in that sort of uh, phony French style that's very popular in New Orleans now, post-Katrina, reclaiming heritage sort of thing. But it is a, a fictionalized young adult account of... Um, the Casket Girls, Vampires, and Hurricane Katrina. That is um, very, very good. It spawned a number of sequels. And um, for young adult historical fiction of a paranormal angle, I can recommend that one as well, because a lot of the history is, in fact, quite solid. Interesting. Cool. Um, as far as ghost stories, the only things that I've heard about um, the Ursuline convent, as you guys know, nobody would tell me anything paranormal when I was there. They didn't want to even like talk to me when I was there. <laughs> but um, apparently there have been tours that have happened when they walk by because when, when you do the a ghost tour or a vampire tour, you walk by at nighttime usually. I mean, they have daytime ones too, but at nighttime they were walking by the convent. The place closes at like three o'clock. So there's no one there at like nine or 10 o'clock. And they heard kids playing in the garden area in the front mm -hmm. of the convent and there was no one there at all um it's probably a residual haunting um and if there's that many kids in the walls or were at some point it wouldn't be surprising if you can hear them playing right um yeah and then there's also better playing than screaming <laughs> hey true maybe they're like dead screaming playing because you know kids <laughs> play you know um <laughs> that's not terrifying I, at all not I'm at not all terrified. none of us are we're all Come smiling play with me oh no <laughs> Um, and then there's also uh, ghost nuns, which is also terrifying and wonderful. So I had an encounter with a ghost nun. <laughs> you had an encounter with a ghost on the nun? garden in the garden district. There was this old hostel slash guest house called the Saint Vincent Guest House, and on the third floor, I was told there's this nun who does her her rounds because that the building was constructed in 1862 as an orphanage for um, children who were left um, parentless by the yellow fever epidemics. Oh my god! And and uh, I did not know that when I booked my rooms. Um, but I was lying in bed one night and I felt like I was being tucked in. But like my boyfriend at the time was in the bathroom still brushing his teeth. So I thought that was weird. And I told this to the woman at the front desk the next morning. She's like, oh, sister so-and-so, she'll does her rounds between midnight and 1230. And she told me if you're out in the hallway um, at that time, she'll slap you on the butt. Oh, my God. She gives you a punch key. You, 
but it, but she finds you in bed, but still awake. She tucks you in. But so what if you're in girl. bed? I want to go to get my butt slapped. I know Kim's going to be like pulling her dress up and be like, get it, get it. Give me a little potchki. I want it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Really super quick before we wrap this up. I'm so glad that you brought up the boutique du vampire, vampire. Um, I went there as well. My boyfriend and I were vampires for Halloween and we got teeth from there and it was bomb. It was so good. Oh yeah. Maven does good teeth. It was so great. Well, we had the teeth that you make at home because I didn't want to spend like $300 a pump. Oh, okay. For Halloween, you know, uh, but you know. Where's your commitment, Gabby? Oh, I should have worn my teeth for the podcast for you guys. So you could Wait talk like this. Oh my gosh. And actually, so my, um, um, recommendation that has come to me from professional fangsmiths is actually get the double set so that you cover your canines and your bilateral incisors because it gives the uh tongue more room to like spread around and you have less of a lift. yeah i sound like a 12 12 or 12 i can't talk i really and that's without the teeth uh i sound like a 12 year old with a retainer when i was wearing them i sound like a nerdy vampire <laughs> Like, yeah. like it's puberty time. Yep, it was fantastic. <laughs> um, but we also got the password to go into the Vampire Speakeasy. So if you want to check out the Vampire Speakeasy, you have to go to the Boutique du Vampire and talk to... Or take my vampire tour. Or go see Rose and take her vampire <laughs> tour. Um, <laughs> and it's super cool. It's literally like you have to have a, a password to even get in. You have to give them a little couple dollars here or there and then it's a really sweet um upstairs like old home old apartment home um like yeah. a loft and they have all kinds of um absinthe and they have red absinthe there as well as green absinthe the red absinthe is dyed red with louisiana hibiscus flowers that's so cool terrence got it it was really cool um but if you ever go to new orleans you've got to check it out they're really fantastic go see rose Rose, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. I really had a lot of fun tonight. It was great to see you again. Yeah. And uh, thanks for bringing me on. Of course. All right. Well, for those of you that are curious about our podcast and want to check out more, please check out our website at www, that's three W's, dot ghoulish tendencies dot com if you want to check out our instagram it is ghoulish tendencies podcast um on instagram it's all one word and we will have new and improved things for you as the podcast continues its journey um if you have any stories or any suggestions of topics that you want us to talk about please message us on instagram or even um just send us an email on our website we also are on Spotify currently, which is very exciting. You can also listen to us on our website. There's a variety of options of how to listen. And we are going to be submitting to Apple Podcasts shortly. So if we're not on there yet, stay tuned. And having said that, stay, stay.